0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello, I'm James Rogers and this is the History Hit World Wars podcast. In this episode, first recorded for Dan Snow's history hit, Dan talks with Roger Morehouse, the fantastic orator, historian of the Third Reich and the Second World War, and the author of The Devil's Alliance, Killing Hitler, and Berlin at War. In this particular episode, which I find fascinating, Dan and Roger discuss one of the worst maritime disasters in history, the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustav in 1945. Now, this ship started out as a sort of pleasure cruiser, a kind of benefit for those who bought into Hitler's Nazi Germany. But, as Roger explains, it becomes Hitler's Titanic. This
2: is... Really one of the most extraordinary stories. Let's talk about the ship itself, and then we'll get yeah. on to the tragic circumstances of its loss at sea. Was this a particularly enormous ship, was it? Or were there just lots of people? Um, not
3: especially enormous. It was, uh, I think, 26,000 tonnes off the top of my head, which is about roughly half the displacement of the Titanic. So it's not massive. I mean, it's a, it's a good-sized cruise ship. It had space for a complement of about 500 crew and 1,500 passengers. So it was a good size. Would be a good size even by modern standards,
2: and what does it do? So it's launched in nineteen thirty-seven. Yeah. Uh, then spends the next few years doing what? What's peculiar about its early
3: history? We, you know, those that know anything about the Gustloff will know broadly the circumstances of its sinking, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what I wanted to do with this ebook is to try and look at the sort of the history of the book, history of the of the vessel in the round. So you know that it's not just its final voyage and its final sort of two days of its life that are interesting i think it actually tells you a much wider story um it was actually uh the first purpose built cruise ship um for the nazi leisure time organization which was known as as kraft durch freude strength through joy they had already by the time that the gustloff is laid down in 36 they had already requisitioned existing ships to serve as their cruise liners but this was the first one that they'd actually laid down and built themselves as you know purpose built for their for their uh, organization so that that in itself i think makes it quite remarkable
2: so what's um, what's the difference between a nazi cruise liner and a normal cruise liner are there any sort of features that they particularly wanted to install
3: <laughs> well i, I mean, it's uh, it sounds a, sl- a slightly sort of um, almost a silly question dan but it's not actually because there are some Features of the Guslav, which are quite peculiar. Um, this organization, Kraft durch Freude, is actually rather important in the history of Nazism. It's one of those aspects of the story of the Third Reich that I think we conventionally overlook, uh, particularly in the West. Our view of how the Third Reich functioned tends to focus on the oppression, if you like, the um, you know, the Gestapo, the SS, uh, the Holocaust, all of that narrative of of uh, peoples under the heel of the Nazi jackboot, um, there is of course another side to that story. Um, you know, any system like that needs to have a carrot as well as a stick, uh, and in a sense, the KDF was part of that carrot. It was part of the appeal that the Nazis sold to their own people and said, "Look at all the benefits that you get from being part of this this Nazi or the this, the, the German national community," as they called it. Um, So the KDF was set up right at the beginning of the Third Reich, and it's basically providing free time activity. It was a key part of the sort of totalitarian ambition, the idea that the regime should have its fingers in absolutely every aspect of your life, from your workplace through to your free time, through to your political activity, whatever it would be, sporting activity. Everything in free time was run by the KDF and was suitably sort of Nazified. So it was a very important part of the of the broader story of the Third Reich, actually, and it's one that we traditionally forget. So it's running, you know, the KDF is running you know, after work, weekend rambles. It starts running holidays for the German people as well. And really, it's one of the sort of progenitors of the, of the package holiday. And it's already going on in the 1930s elsewhere, but it's something that the KDF picks up and it runs with. Um, and of course, they, these things are very, very much politicized. You'd make sure that all the sort of, you know, political content was there. Um, you know, you'd have speeches and and introductory talks and lectures and so on, as well as as well as the free time activities. So it's quite political as well as being a free time organization. So to come back to your question about what what uh, was specific about the Wilhelm Gustloff, I said it was it was um, purpose built by the Nazis for this purpose, and um, it had, for example, it was a classless ship. That's one of the peculiarities. It had no diff no. Differentiation between classes. Everybody paid the same. Everybody had a cabin that had a you know a window and an outside view. Um, so it's that it sort of ties in with the the, the small s socialist aspect of the national socialist idea. You know, everyone was equal as long as you're in a part of the German nation and a part of the German folk. Uh, everyone's equal within that. So that was one aspect. Um, it also had, for example, you know. You know the, the ship's tannoy was, was, you know, was rigged up to be playing um, patriotic marches, Hitler's speeches, whatever it would be. So that it enables you to run that political content. Uh, and of course, its cruises had, um, had uh, Gestapo men on them so that they could uh, inform, if necessary, on anyone who was uh, uh, not on message and not being sufficiently Nazi. So it does have a few features that are actually rather specific uh, to a Nazi cruise ship.
2: Right. And in 1939, war breaks out. Now, unfortunately for Germany's ultimate chances of victory, Britannia rules the waves. So what happens to big Nazi cruise ships like this one? Do Do they just return to port and sit there and rot?
3: Well, a little bit. They sort of it sort of served its purpose in that sense because there are no Nazi cruises going on. Um, you know, by 1939, by the, by the autumn of 1939, I mean it had travelled quite widely by this point. It's been up into the into the Baltic. It's been up the Norwegian fjords. It used to do runs into the into the Mediterranean and to uh, to the Azores and things like that. So it's quite well travelled. By this time, it would have would have carried the Guslov on its own. Would have carried about seventy five thousand people on its cruises. So it was. It had quite a sort of a rich career as a cruise ship. Come the autumn of 1939, obviously it gets redesignated initially as a hospital ship. You know, it's moored off Gdynia, off uh, what's what becomes known as as to the Germans, what's now northern Poland, northern Polish coast, uh, and is used there as a hospital ship to to um uh, take care of the wounded from the Polish campaign. It then plays the same role in the Norwegian campaign in 1940. So it's sort of ferried around serving that role in the opening phases of World War Two. It's a bit of an ign- ignominious sort of come down from this ship, which was, you know, very much the most famous peacetime vessel, you no, know, aside from ships like the like the Bismarck, the bat- battleships and so on, it's very much the most famous peacetime vessel of, of Nazi Germany. So it's very much a come down uh, to be serving as a hospital ship in that way. It's next uh Sort of iteration is is uh, you know later on in the war it gets again moored in Gdynia, in Gortenhafen and, and is and is left there as a effectively as a barracks ship, but that I think most people that have studied this period tend to view that again as, as sort of the ultimate ignominy that it's left in a provincial sort of Baltic backwater, uh, and is largely forgotten. I think that's actually a rather more crucial part of the story is that is that we overlook the importance of the Eastern Baltic to the German U-boat campaign. And it was actually serving a very important purpose there as a barrackship ship for one of those U-boat detachments.
2: At what stage does it enter infamy, if if you like? Why does this name echo down the years?
3: You have to fast forward a bit to um, very close to the end of the war, January of 1945. And at that point, the uh, soviets are already making major inroads into they've already entered german east prussia for example they're making major inroads into occupied poland so warsaw for example is liberated in the middle of january 1945 Uh, so the soviets are very much on the way at this point and the germans um, set up an operation which is called operation hannibal uh, which is quite remarkable. And, I, and again, I think in uh, Western historiography, ma- massively understudied. Um, it is an enormous evacuation operation from the German eastern provinces uh, via the Baltic predominantly. And they use almost any ship they can get their hands on, um, cruise ships, freighters, you know, anything, anything they can find, um, to evacuate wounded ma- uh, military personnel Um, to evacuate troops that are still capable that can be shifted to another theatre, but also some of the many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilian refugees who are being sort of pushed westwards on the bayonets of the Red Army at this point. And this is the operation that the Wilhelm Gustloff is called in to, to help with. It only makes one run. It's quite interesting that there's various ships used in Operation Hannibal, which are used much more extensively. Uh, than uh, Wilhelm Gustloff. There's one called the Deutschland, which was another cruise ship, slightly smaller than the uh, than the Gustloff, which actually makes, I think, seven crossings of the Baltic Sea from uh, from Gdansk, Kedynia down to across to Kiel, uh, and and you know t- takes out tens of thousands of, of refugees and and wounded soldiers. So it's a massive operation. I think it's the largest sort of seaborne evacuation in history, but to Western historiography, it's just, it's sort of irrelevant. It's not really talked about at all. So I try and I try and bring that into the narrative, um, you know, as much as I can. As I said, the Gustloff only makes one crossing, and that one was incomplete. It sets off from Gdynia on the morning of the 30th of January 1945, which, of course, is the anniversary of Hitler coming to power in 1933. So it was a date that was uh, rather written in the stars, I think, for the for the Wilhelm Guslov. And that night, it was cruising westwards, about sort of 20 miles off the north Polish coast, the Pomeranian coast, and was torpedoed by a Soviet submarine. Uh, was hit three times uh, across her flanks and sank in 40 minutes, which of itself was a fairly common fate. A lot of ships, even operation, even ships used in Operation Hannibal, uh, suffered a similar fate. What's peculiar, I think, about the the Gustloff story is that when she was torpedoed and when she went down, she was carrying somewhere around 11,000 people.
2: Uh, 11,000 people. Hang on, yeah. how many has she been built for?
3: She was built for uh, and designed for basically 2,000. 1,500 passengers, about 500 crew. So there
2: must uh, have been people clinging on the railings. I mean, absolutely It was packed.
3: It was absolutely packed to the gunnels. You know, standing room only. The vast majority of those on board were women and children. There are military personnel, there are wounded military as well, uh, but the vast majority are civilians and most of those are women and children. So you only have to imagine the sort of horrific scenes in the Baltic. The Baltic Sea is extremely cold in January 1945, as it is in any January. The ship lists very heavily to the port side. So as I said, in 40 minutes, it's basically, she's basically sunk. And you're left, I mean, many of those, many of the dead from the Wilhelm Gustloff never get out of the ship, which is another sort of horrific thought. It's quite an astonishing story. There are basically, by the time they sort of various vessels come in for a rescue operation to try and um, pick up survivors and all the rest of it, by the time they get to shore, they have 1,252 survivors. And it leaves us with an estimate, and it is only an estimate, because those that were letting all the refugees on the ship at Gdynia essentially stopped counting at about 8,000. So the estimate is there were about 11,000 on the ship when she sailed, uh, which gives us a total of about 9,500 dead, uh, which makes it the largest maritime disaster in history.
4: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: Harrowing accounts of, of the sinking. What were those last forty minutes like before before she sank uh, beneath the waves?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you only have to imagine. Dan, they're absolutely horrific. Quite astonishing stories of, of you know, people having you know the last gasp of getting hold of their loved ones as they go over the rails. And there's quite a remarkable story that springs to mind is of a woman who was on the ship and it's listing heavily to port, and she hands her infant child to to one of the crew who's standing there who then promptly disappears and she doesn't know where he's gone she doesn't know if he's gone over the side or what but she's obviously (laughs) very distressed she then subsequently finds herself in a lifeboat which was, was was a very exceptional experience as i said most people didn't get that far subsequently onto a rescue ship at which point a character appears out of the gloom and hands back the child remarkably the two had managed to find each other at the end of the at the end of the sinking so there are a couple of sort of stories like that which are which are you know remarkable cases of sort of serendipity and chance but for the vast majority it is absolutely horrific there's one particular aspect is that there were one of the decks was completely sealed in with uh, it was a promenade deck but it was sealed in with glass panels Uh, And a lot of those from from further down below decks, as I said, there was standing room only in the vessel, fought their way up through the stairwells, which, of course, became absolute death traps. And people were trampled in the stairwells, uh, fought their way up to what they thought was a deck from which they could exit the ship. And they found themselves effectively in a glass coffin Uh, and to try and sort of force your way back out of that particular promenade deck was almost impossible so people were just being crushed in in this as you know as i said a, 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 an eyewitness described it as a glass coffin um so the scenes on deck are, are absolutely horrific um and i think it's a story that's really been i wouldn't say covered up but it's certainly not it doesn't fit the narrative um of world war ii that we've conventionally have it's it had it's not uh, it's not something that the germans have tended to shout about
2: roger was it a war crime
3: was it a war crime technically no I'll tell you why it was considered a legitimate target. It was carrying military personnel um, in their wisdom the um, the authorities in Gdynia had uh, lashed a couple of anti-aircraft guns to her to her upper decks, um, hoping that that would deter attack um, and of course you know at, she was traveling uh, periodically with lights but often often also with lights out. Through a war zone, carrying military personnel, and she's armed. So technically, no, it's not a war crime. Uh, this is one of the big arguments I think of of, sort of, of uh, sort of post-war historiography on this. But no, I don't think it is a war crime. I think that rather discounts it. It's one of those things that happens in war. It was torpedoed, if you like, in in good faith by a Soviet submarine crew. They, of course, never expressed any any remorse for what they did. They saw it as a normal. Um, you know, acts of warfare in, in 1945. It is cruel. The vast majority of those that are killed are women and children. Um, it's cruel, but war is cruel, unfortunately. Um, but I, I don't class it as a war crime.
2: And obviously, the Soviets never, never apologized for it, as it were, but they, they no. didn't regard it as, as they regarded it as legitimate military target.
3: Absolutely. And it's, I mean, actually, the story of the captain of the uh, submarine is very interesting as well. He was a chap called Marinesco, uh, who was himself a very flawed character uh, and uh, was sort of on his last chance as a a submarine commander in 1945. And then he ended up sinking the Wilhelm Gustloff, one of the sort of, uh, you'd imagine, the greatest achievement of his career. He was subsequently sort of stripped and went put down to the ranks. Uh, for his previous misdemeanors and ended up in a in a succession of uh, work camps in Siberia, it was almost his redemption, but not quite. I mean, his story is quite a remarkable one, and he's only given the um, you know the highest order, the Order of Lenin. He's only awarded that posthumously, actually by Gorbachev in 1989. So his story is quite a quite an interesting one as well. Uh, but no, it's certainly not regarded by as I as far as I can tell, certainly not by the Russians or by the Soviets before them. Uh, And certainly not by um, most sober observers, it's not regarded as a war crime.
2: Roger, in Germany, does this stand out in what was the darkest period in German history as a uniquely awful event, or is it just swept up with all the other terrible things that were going on across Central Europe?
3: I think it tends to be swept up, uh, certainly in the German mind it tends to be swept up with, uh, as you say, all of the other awful events of that period um and perhaps rightly so there's you know if you look at the the death toll there it's it is quite horrific to our modern sort of peacetime eyes but in terms of 1945 it's a drop in the ocean really no pun intended but so i think i think you know partly correctly it does get sort of subsumed into that general horror of the end of the war um what i think is a bit more interesting certainly in in the german view is how this has been uh initially almost you know deliberately forgotten um so i think you used the phrase swept under the carpet um it was a that's a little bit the case with the wilhelm gustloff because it because it falls into the category of german victimhood and german victimhood was something that for a long time post-war actually until comparatively recently but really until the last 20 years or so was something that really couldn't be mentioned in polite society so the Germans were the perpetrators. They were the ones that started the war. They were the perpetrators of the Holocaust. Uh, and to talk about German victimhood at the same time in World War II was distasteful. Uh, and Germans didn't do it. So stories like this just, got, just didn't get talked about, got largely forgotten. And it's very interesting, the career of the chap who actually did most of the sort of hard work of researching the story, of the Wilhelm Gustloff, a chap called Heinz Schön, um, he was actually on the ship as a, as a young man, as an 18 year old and survived. Um, and, uh, essentially spent his entire life until he died in 2013, uh, researching, collecting eyewitness accounts, collecting information. And he pu- published a number of books, uh, over that period, but was, was very, very much out on the fringes was very much forgotten, you know, considered to be, um, you know, someone who was, uh, slightly beyond the pale and, you know, uh, beyond polite society. Um, so this is where you know, sort of German historiography gets to. It doesn't talk about that stuff until about 20 years ago. And it's quite interesting. There is a shift that the, uh, the Gustav story is, is, is front center in Gunter Grass's novel um, Crub Walk, which I think from memory came out in 2002. Uh, and that was one of those moments where there's a, there's a general sort of almost tectonic shift in German historiography and in Germany's treatment of its own history, and it suddenly becomes possible for German society to start talking about its own victims. Admittedly, within certain parameters and in certain circumstances, but it at least becomes possible. And Schoen, at the very end of his career and at the end of his life, he has this sort of swan song of being someone who is, um, who is, uh, you know, considered interesting and is is he, uh, invited to the conferences and and comes back in from the cold, as it were. So there's a very interesting sort of sub-narrative here of how Germany treats its own history and how it has done post-war.
2: Roger, as always, it's great to have you on History here. Thank you so much. The book is available as an e-book, is it? Tell us quickly how you That's get it. That's right.
3: It is. It's, a, it's a, an, an, a Kindle single, so it's an e-book available via Amazon. The title is Ship of Fate.
2: And uh, thank you for reminding us all about the worst maritime disaster of all time that uh, probably most of us had never
0: heard of. Thanks very much.